You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It's been three days since the triple stabbing in Chinatown, allegedly at the hands of a man with a violent history out on a day pass from a psychiatric hospital, and we still don't know why. The attack has left the community shaken with many questions about the decision to allow him out unescorted. Our Romina Deo went looking for answers. Who made the decision to release 64-year-old Blair Evan Donnelly from the forensic psychiatric hospital on a day pass? Donnelly found not criminally responsible for stabbing his 16-year-old daughter to death in 2006. Three years later, he was released and stabbed another person. A guy who had killed a daughter, right? his own daughter. I think the system is, is totally fell. The innocent victims stabbed at a family event in Chinatown Sunday and the public demanding accountability and transparency from the Forensic Hospital and BC Review Board. There has been no accountability by them on this. They're refusing to talk to us. So I'm just asking for contact information. Right, we gave it to you. Right, and nobody's responding to that email. Can't I've already explained else. that. Can't do anything else. Okay, so no one can help us. Not here. Well, where do you suggest we go then? E emailing that address. For how they long? We'll respond to you eventually. Eventually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll tell the public that then, that eventually there'll be a response on this very serious matter. It's not acceptable. Three days in, still no answers from the review board to our specific questions. We're still waiting for a copy of the board's recent decision on Donnelly. The only bare-bones document provided to Global News on Monday, one page, stating on April 13th, the board ruled Donnelly could have access to the community at the director's discretion. So who is the director? We went to the forensic hospital to get answers after our calls went nowhere. I want to know who made the decision to release Mr. Donnelly and how they came to that decision, that there was no threat to the community. That's what I want to know. I'll try my best. They've created this air of secrecy. Victims' rights advocate Dave Teixeira says he battled the BC Review Board for 15 years after triple child killer Alan Schoenborn lobbied for day release from the forensic hospital. They believe that they are a system above the system. Literally with a stroke of a pen, the uh, provincial government could ensure that there's open and transparency within the BC Review Board. The Premier calling for an independent review into how Donnelly got released on a day pass. It's unclear when or even if the details will be made public. Romina Dea, Global News. As BC approaches what's usually the end of wildfire season and people are returning to impacted communities, officials are warning we are still not in the clear. One of the biggest challenges continues to be the extreme drought conditions much of the province is still grappling with. Aaron MacArthur reports. Getting cars off the Needles Ferry, a little more complicated than usual. The Arrow Lakes, in some places, meters below where they typically are this time of year. Well, I think we've come down 50 feet maybe, 60 feet at least. It's a reservoir, right? We all know that, but... But this year has been extremely uh, disappointing. While usage of the lake is affected, the low water level spills over to impact the ecosystem, tourism, and the regional economy. 
A local group is drawing attention to the situation, wondering why the lake level has fluctuated so much without any warning from BC Hydro. One minute you're at the beach with your kids, the next minute you're sinking in quicksand. Like We had no idea this was coming and it was a big shock to everyone. Drought is playing a role, but so too is the Columbia River Treaty. BC Hydro required to release a certain amount of water in order to generate power here in BC and downstream in the U.S. In a statement, Hydro says we've taken a number of steps to help mitigate the impact of this year's drought conditions on Arrow Lakes Reservoir. We negotiated with the U.S. to hold back additional water this spring, which resulted in Arrow Lakes Reservoir being 2.4 metres higher from May to August. NACUSP Councillor Aidan McLaren Coe says this climate emergency means the treaty, which is being renegotiated right now, needs to reflect a different set of values. It's no longer an option to just focus on power generation and flood management. So this time they are considering the socioeconomic impacts, the wildlife impacts, you know, indigenous impacts. So, and then climate change is massive. The lake level will remain low through the winter and spring, hopefully recharged by next year's freshet. The concern is that the persistent drought brings rain and snow too late or much less than needed. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. So far this wildfire season, 2.36 million hectares of land is burned across B.C., with most of that damage occurring in the Prince George Fire Center. 640 fires have scorched 1.8 million hectares of land there, which makes up nearly 80% of this year's total fire activity. Well, the McDougall Creek wildfire is still burning above West Kelowna nearly one month since it began. But many residents are now home and back to daily life. Not everyone, though. People in the community of Bear Creek still can't return. And as Cassidy Moscone reports, they feel abandoned. They call themselves the forgotten community. Nobody here knows what is the estimated time we're going to be out. When the RCMP roadblocks come down, is it a free-for-all? What kind of damage has incurred um, when we can get up there? Countless questions from a neighbourhood decimated by the West Kelowna wildfires. Four weeks on, this is Bear Creek's call to action. The clock is ticking. If, if we don't get adjusters up to our properties by Friday, most of us will have no no coverage. Looming and seemingly impossible deadlines when many say they haven't been let back into the neighbourhood. What's the status of your house? Um, I don't really officially know 100%. Officially? I have no idea. If it wasn't for the kindness of first responders that took literally pity on the majority of us to send us photos or whatever, none of us would know anything. Residents united in grief and their quest for answers. I would really like to see some kind of inquiry as to what decision was made to not put resources on that fire that could have been put out when it was a hectare in size. The regional district says residents are being kept out for their own safety and crews are working hard to rescind orders. The residents disagree with some now threatening to take matters into their own hands. 
the one gentleman was talking about wants everybody just uh, you know storm the gates so to speak right and and, and you know realistically it, it, you push people far enough and it'll come to that others looking forward I mean it's BC we're gonna burn so where are we broken let's let's make this better um, so that other people don't have to go through this devastation pleas they say are falling on deaf ears Cassidy Moscone Global News. Some explosive revelations about B.C.'s devastating 2021 floods are detailed in newly released documents. As Paul Johnson reports, the provincial government and the city of Merritt knew about serious problems with the city's dikes years before they failed. I really wanted to have a look at this uh, because of the severity of the flooding in 2021. It's no surprise researcher Ben Parfit would be interested in what the province knew about the state of the diking system in Merritt. Fall of 21, atmospheric river caused extensive flooding there, an emergency evacuation, and damage that's taken years to repair. Parfit says his freedom of information request turned up this. For four years running, the provincial government was told repeatedly that the dikes in Merritt were in deplorable shape. A professional engineer actually warned about the stability uh, or instability of those dikes in his reports. In B.C., it's the municipalities that typically are the front lines for dike maintenance but it's the province that oversees and ultimately has the power and the money to make major repairs happen. Bruce Ralston is the current minister responsible, and we asked him Wednesday how years of red flags were apparently missed. British Columbia's uh, mitigation and awareness efforts uh, have been accelerated since then, and um, funds have been allocated. I have a figure of $145 million. Ralston says he's optimistic that new work planned for those dikes will shore them up adequately for future storms. As for Merritt's leadership, the mayor says the 2021 storm unleashed so much water, he's not sure that even a fortified dike could have prevented the flood. But he still wants those dikes to be up to spec and for the province to properly do its job on them. It shows that we need a provincial diking authority that has teeth, that has properly trained people, hydrologists, possible engineers uh, that are able to inspect these dikes yearly and their reports are taken seriously. Paul Johnson, Global News. A report from the B.C. Search and Rescue Association says more than 1,000 lives were saved during rescue missions last year. The report is the first of its kind shared by the group. 1,019 lives were saved in 2022 thanks to search and rescue intervention. Crews were sent out on more than 1,500 missions where 43% of those rescued would have died if crews hadn't been deployed. A total of 1,758 people were rescued, 94 bodies were recovered, and 71 people were still missing after searches were suspended. The association says the economic and social costs averted by saving more than 1,000 lives is estimated at $4.4 billion. One of the challenges in Metro Vancouver's housing shortage is finding room to build, but it turns out there's also a squeeze on industrial land. As Grace Key shows us, not only is it costing the region thousands of jobs and millions in GDP, 
It's causing some firms to leave the area altogether in search of more space. Greater Vancouver is at a critical shortage of industrial land, with vacancy rates around 1%, the lowest in North America. And it's costing the area thousands of jobs. That's according to a new report from the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and the Commercial Real Estate Industry Association. That's created a lot of pressures on pricing for industrial land and lease rates and the lack of supply for businesses to locate here and grow. And that's led to some businesses having to leave the region and seek other areas uh, within Western Canada or even the Pacific Northwest. Over the past four and a half years, an estimated 5.1 million square feet of space has been taken up by firms in Calgary rather than Metro Vancouver, resulting in the loss of 6,300 jobs, $477 million in wages, and nearly $500 million in GDP. Part of the problem is that there's such a scarcity of land and what is available are very small parcels. Many of those parcels, it's not feasible for it to become industrial land. Businesses have been sounding the alarm for years. There's been a rezoning of industrial land for housing and mixed use. There's also been a shift from factories and heavy use to include film production, food uses and light manufacturing. Industrial lands make up just 4% of the total land mass in the region, but result in more than 450,000 direct and indirect jobs and $50 billion in GDP. People are having difficulties finding a place to live, and employers are having a difficult time trying to find a place to have their operations or grow their operations. So we are being left in a situation where there's an affordability crisis for housing and affordability crisis for businesses. And if you don't have either of those, you don't have an economy and you don't have a community. Recommendations to government include a refocus on regional land use planning, increased protection of industrial land use, and revise land use plans every three years. The study shows for every 1% increase in available industrial land, that's an additional 126,000 jobs that provide above average salaries. Grace Key, Global News. A slew of fees from city licenses to services are about to get more expensive in the city of Vancouver. Troy Charles is live at City Hall for us now with more. And Troy, Council just passed the increases in principle. So what's next? Chris, city staff and council call the fee hikes necessary to limit the property tax increase in the upcoming budget. Everything from business licensing, trade contractor license, even licensing your dog, that's all going up in Vancouver. But the biggest increase, that's going to hit owners of short-term rentals. It will now cost $1,000 annually to license an STR. That is up significantly from the current price of $109. City staff had proposed to bring the fee up to $450, but at today's meeting, Councillor Lenny Joe proposed an amendment bringing the fee up to $1,000. Joe estimates at that price it would generate the city an additional $2.6 million in revenue. The amendment was unanimously supported by Council. So this amendment will help us, uh, you know, enhance our enforcement effort by hiring more uh, uh, inspectors and enforcement officers. Can also help us enhance the uh, capability of identifying and address our uh, illegal short-term rental operators. And also could help us uh, invest uh, new technology and analytics tools to help us make the current uh, enforcement uh, process more efficient and effective. 
Chris, I also spoke with Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. She's calling on the city to improve its hotel stock. She says a dire shortage of hotel rooms is putting added pressure on that short-term rental market. And I'll have a full report on all that went down at City Council today coming up at 11. Back to you. Sounds good. That's Troy Charles down at City Hall for us tonight. Thanks, Troy. A growing call for rent control. I am paying almost 80% of my income to rent. The protest against unfair rent increases and a new report proposing a way to cap it no matter who moves in. Why critics say it won't work. Next on the News Hour. A major agreement to turn Prince George into a green hydrogen hub. The money and jobs at stake coming up on the News Hour. Plus, my mom's ring is actually engraved and it says everything's going to be all right. Facing grief far too young. The special camp helping kids cope with heartbreaking loss. That's later. Right now, though, B.C.'s largest public sector union is calling on the province to adopt new vacancy controls. The policy would prohibit landlords from increasing rents when a tenant moves out. But as Kylie Stanton reports, some critics say it has serious flaws. The people, united, will never be defeated. They come from all walks of life. But the one thing that unites this group are their stories. I am paying almost 80% of my income to rent. People who are afraid to ask for repairs, afraid to complain about noise. Renters and housing advocates gather outside the B.C. legislature Wednesday, calling on the provincial government to take action. To implement vacancy control now. The housing policy is a form of rent control that ties rent increases to a unit rather than a tenancy agreement. So for example, a two-bedroom renting for $2,300 a month can't just be hiked to $3,300 a month for a new tenant moving in. A new report commissioned by the BC General Employees Union found since 2019 in major metro areas, rent has increased between 10 and 23 percent year after year. One in three renters now say rents have become untenable. This is an emergency. But inflationary pressures are impacting everyone, even landlords. And there's concern the unintended consequences of the policy aren't being considered. It's dicey because when you punish people for deciding to rent out their properties, obviously you run the risk that people are going to be less likely to rent their properties out. Crushing supply I don't think is something this current government is interested in. Back in 2018, B.C.'s Government Rental Housing Task Force determined that vacancy control would only reduce affordable rental stock. In a statement, B.C.'s housing minister said, we are full steam ahead to create even more new rental supply to help make housing more affordable. While those here admit vacancy control alone is not a silver bullet, they believe it would help close the loophole. And so they keep sharing their stories. When is the time that we could say, that is my place? I'm not going to move anywhere. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Well, virtually from the day he was elected last October, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim has pledged to cut his city's notoriously bad red tape and bureaucracy. No easy task. And as Kamal Kuramali reports, one small business owner says from his experience, the change isn't happening nearly fast enough. Tom's salon in Chinatown facing the fallout from crime and homeless camps. I've got bars on the windows, graffiti, 
threats. But it was trying to open a new salon in Yale Town that's cut deeply into Tom Robbins' overall revenue. It took 12 months to open a 2,000 square foot salon. Frustrating? Yeah, very frustrating. Sinking more than $30,000 into rent and staffing while waiting for the city to approve his business permit. It still took over eight weeks to get a simple electrical and plumbing permit. It's just this old school system of back and forth, then somebody comes and inspects it, they go away, then the next person inspects it, then you do the work, then someone comes back and inspects it again. So it's just this whole drawn out process for what should be simple, simple stuff. It's a problem businesses are demanding the city to resolve. I think that everyone recognizes that change needs to happen, uh, that we're, we're stuck in an antiquated system and that we need to move forward uh, at the speed of business. The city of Vancouver says it is working to streamline processes and cut through red tape, although did not give a firm timeline on when some of those changes would take place. Reducing nearly 600 license types down to 88, introducing new digital tools for applicants and removing 20% of conditions when it comes to engineering review requirements. Clearly we have more work to do, but this is a priority. Welcome to our new salon. Now Robin's finally able to open his new salon, looking to fill the chairs and grow back the business loss to delays. These are not business friendly practices. It should not take 12 months to open a business in this city. And if it does, then the issue is systemic. Hoping his words help change the city of Vancouver's approach to business. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Up next, a blow to BC United and a boost for the BC Conservative Party. The real reason why I have decided to make the move is to have the ability to speak unfiltered, why Bruce Banman is switching sides and the impact on the B.C. legislature. And later in sports, the play that spoiled a lot of fantasy pools on Monday night. And what the Lions kickers have to say about it. Good evening. Traffic is moving well both ways over at the Portman Bridge. It's further east in Langley that there's a crash on Highway 1 at 264th Street with crews on scene and big delays. Today's Lotto 649 gold ball jackpot is $60 million plus the classic $5 million jackpot. Two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. It's a move that's shaking up B.C.'s political status quo. The B.C. United MLA for Abbotsford South crossing the floor to the B.C. Conservative Party. As Richard Zussman reports, Bruce Banman's defection means the Conservatives will get official party status in the legislature at the expense of his former party. United, no more. I was have finding it increasingly difficult to speak up on behalf of the people that voted for me and put their trust in me. Abbotsford South MLA Bruce Banman quitting the BC United Caucus and joining the upstart Conservative Party of BC. I am not alone in some of my thoughts and some of my views, um, but uh, whether or not my colleagues choose to uh, to come over as well, I mean that's a that's a it's a it's a it's a very personal decision. To discourage people from being Banman has been an MLA since 2020 and has attracted controversy in the past, including serving as Abbotsford's mayor when city staff dumped chicken manure on a homeless camp. I was shocked and embarrassed. This switch now gives the Conservatives two seats in BC and official party status. 
joining party leader John Rustad, who was booted from the then-BC Liberal caucus for suggesting climate change is not caused by carbon emissions. Whether it's the Green Party, whether it's the NDP Party, NDP party or whether it's the BC United Party, they're all left to centre. And three lefts don't make it right. The Conservative Party of BC has been gaining momentum in recent polls, largely at the expense of BC United. And in the last round of by-elections in Langford, Wanda Fuca, the Conservatives finished second, while BC United finished fourth, putting BC United leader Kevin Falcon on the hot seat. Bruce was a, a bit of a management challenge for us on an ongoing basis. John Rustad can enjoy that. Abbotsford South has a history of political rebels. First, John Van Dongen switching from Liberal to Conservative. No comment. And Daryl Plekis going Liberal to Independent. Now this, which could have the largest impact on the overall political landscape. I think the rebranding of the BC Liberal Party um, to BC United has perhaps not got off to the greatest start. Uh, some confusion as to who they are and what they stand for. And at the same time, Pierre Polyev seems to be lifting all Conservative boats. And the next step for the Conservatives would be turning those boats into actual electoral votes. Something that would surely sink both BC United and Kevin Falcon. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Keith Calgary joins us with more on this. Hamish Telford uh, sort of uh, mentioned it, Keith, but it's not just locally that conservative popularity is starting to rise. Of course, federally the tide is changing too. Yeah, and the theory is that perhaps we're seeing this surge in B.C. Conservative uh, support both in the by-elections and in recent polling, uh, dovetailing with the rise in the Pierre Poliev uh, support right across the country, particularly here in B.C. He was at a rally here on Vancouver Island last night. Not normally friendly turf to, be, to the federal Conservatives, although they have held the riding in the past. Got a big crowd out there. He's polling very well nationally and in B.C. And in fact, if you take what the, the federal Conservatives have enjoyed federally in terms of voter support, you put it on a map of B.C. And you can basically see everything outside of Metro Vancouver and the island is fertile territory for pickups for the B.C. Conservatives come the next provincial election. If you just take federal Conservative voters turning to be provincial voters, these are the types of ridings in place. You know, Peace River, both ridings could go Conservative. Okanagan, lion's share there could as well. The Kootenays, there's two ridings at stake there. The interior, very rich, fertile ground for B.C. Conservatives, three to four ridings. And the north, again, federally very strong territory for the, for the federal Conservatives easily transferable to the B.C. Conservatives. A point John Rustad made in an interview with him today, basically saying he's trying to capitalize on this mood for change that Pierre Poliev is picking up on, and he thinks that's going to be reflective in the next B.C. election, and he thinks his party's the one to benefit from that. And sure, there may be some confusion with, you know, conservative and liberal and these things that are going on federally, uh, but really, I think, you know, people are looking for change. There's an underlying current in our society where people feel that things are just not right. So Bruce Bamman could play a real key role here. Maybe others follow him out of the BC United Caucus into Conservatives. Maybe that happens. Or maybe we go back to what we saw in Richard's piece, John Van quit the Liberals in 2012, joined the Conservatives, the expectation the Liberals were going to lose the election. What happened? The Conservatives crashed and burned at the provincial level. The Liberals won re-election. Take the long view in BC politics. Critical difference now, though, more people know who the BC Conservatives are than know who the BC United Party are. And that's a challenge for Kevin Falcon. Well, we'll find out in uh, just over a year from now. Thanks, Keith. Just ahead, helping children navigate grief. When no one is going through the same thing that you are, it's quite isolating. How Camp Carry helps kids cope with unimaginable loss. Also ahead, the renewed effort to revive the old interurban rail line. Next.
No delays in either direction over at the Patello Bridge this evening, but do expect some minor backups later on for northbound traffic for ongoing road work till 10 p.m. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert care for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision repair and auto glass services. Choose the best. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. It's an idea that gets dusted off every few years. Langley Township is spearheading an effort to relaunch the Fraser Valley Interurban Rail Line. The service carried passengers from downtown Vancouver out to Chilliwack and back. And even though it hasn't run since 1950, supporters say reviving at least part of the line could help solve the region's daily traffic snarl. Janet Brown has the details. These train tracks running through Langley across the bypass near Glover Road could one day be carrying passenger trains, not just freight. This rail line will be an absolute boon to south of Fraser. Langley Township Council has voted unanimously to send a resolution to the Union of BC Municipalities calling on the province to reactivate the interurban rail corridor. It carries unanimously. I'm 77 years old. <laughs> Before I leave this earth, I want to be on that train. Former Township Mayor Rick Green has been working on the idea for years, hoping to see people move between Surrey and Chilliwack along the existing rail line. Much like they did back at the start of the 1900s and into the late 1940s. You're probably talking about a, oh, about a 90-minute uh, run from Chilliwack to the Patella Bridge. It is envisioned the route would have roughly a dozen stops through the Fraser Valley. Surrey, Langley, Abbotsford and Chilliwack running 16 hours a day. I'm super excited about the, the chance that we can get more people moving. Township Councillor Michael Pratt says public transit hasn't kept up with population growth and major roads and Highway 1 are congested. People are just frustrated with being stuck in traffic. Proponents have suggested the trains be powered by hydrogen, but Pratt says that may not be the right technology. One of the uh, only jurisdictions in the world that's used hydrogen so far in Germany, um, they won't be moving forward anymore with hydrogen trains. They're going to be moving back to simple electrification of their line. Regardless of how it is powered, the interurban would be a much cheaper mode of transportation compared to what the lower mainland is familiar with. SkyTrain is just, it's a Cadillac of systems. Whether higher levels of government will push the idea down the tracks, time will tell. Janet Brown, Global News. The tent encampment in Vancouver's Vanier Park burned to the ground overnight after several warnings about the site over the past few months. It appears the fire was started by someone cooking inside the 40 by 40 foot structure. But no one was at the camp when firefighters arrived shortly after midnight. Crews cleaning up the site today found a number of gas and propane tanks along with tents and people's belongings. Back in March, the camp's residents were ordered to clear the site but have since returned. And just last week, more than 150 propane tanks were removed from the encampment. Over the past few years, the opioid crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic have taken a huge, devastating toll on families. Thousands of children are caught in a cycle of sorrow with little support to navigate their grief. Now, as Nitu Garcha reports, a small BC charity is responding to give kids the comfort they need. I have photos everywhere. I have photos 
from when they were younger up on my walls. Lily Friesen carries these photos of her father who died when she was seven and her mother who passed away last year along with symbols of her parents' love. My mom's ring is actually engraved and it says everything's going to be all right. And while the 17-year-old also carries heavy grief, she's learned powerful tools to cope. Let myself have a bad day because not everybody has a good day every day. Sometimes there are days when I need to just be alone or be with someone I love. Tools she learned through Canada's first bereavement retreat for grieving children and families, a sort of summer grief camp. When no one is going through the same thing that you are, it's quite isolating. So when we arrived at Camp Carry, we were surrounded by hundreds of other people who were going through the exact same thing. And we still are very close with those people that we met 10 years ago. Camp Carry offers care families couldn't otherwise afford or find. The four-day retreat put on by BC-based charity Lumera is happening in BC this week and another is in Ontario in October. They use counseling, therapy dogs, land-based healing, education and music therapy. I'd like you to sing me a song. Every year the needs are increasing and certainly in the last two years we've had double the amount of referrals that we've ever had. She says in BC and Ontario, Lumera had 145 families apply for the camp this year. That's the most interest it's seen since its inception in 2007 and twice as many applicants as they have spaces. While they invite participants to make contributions, there's no financial commitment to families, so the charity relies on donations. During the pandemic, the government did provide funding for mental health support. That did not include bereavement care. We need people to donate so that we don't turn people away. With thousands of families across Canada struggling through grief amplified by the pandemic and the toxic drug poisoning crisis, Lumera is urging the Canadian government to create a national bereavement strategy, like in the U.S. and the U.K. I am determined to help other people receive that support because it helped me more than I can say. Hoping to one day work in a country that will bolster government funding for grief services, Lily will graduate high school next year with plans of studying psychology and becoming a therapist. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Vancouver. Still to come tonight, a dream trip for a group of Nishka dancers. So where are you going? Hawaii. Their special performance in paradise and what it took to get them there later. Plus, the latest move to turn Prince George into a game-changing green hydrogen hub. Australian metals company Fortescue is announcing plans for a large-scale green hydrogen and ammonia facility in Prince George. The company submitted an initial project description and early engagement plan with BC's Environmental Assessment Office. If approved and built, the plant would produce about 140,000 tons of green hydrogen and 800,000 tons of green ammonia annually, which could be used to replace fossil fuels. Fortescue has, already, has also already signed a memorandum of understanding with the Klekle Tene First Nation, and they're working on an impacts and benefits agreement as well. Fortescue, actually, when I first came in for chief, came in to ask to meet with me and our council, which we did. And to be honest with you, I didn't know what green hydrogen was. So we uh, <clears throat> met with Steve quite a few times, met with the communities, and to give us, to school us on what this was. <clears throat> and once we got the understanding of it, we were saying, yes, we want this, we need this. 
Project Coyote has the potential to create more than 250 jobs during construction and more than 100 jobs once complete. It should get an answer of formal acceptance from the EAO in 7 to 10 days. Look forward to that update. And let's get an update on the forecast now from Christy, now that we're almost over the hump. <laughs> yeah, so once again, sunshine today. We've got more of it on the way. But during a press conference today, I wanted to mention the BC uh, Wildfire Service stating once again that the long-range forecast is showing that we're going to see above-average temperatures and likely below-average precipitation. And the reason is because time and time again, since uh, basically spring last year, we've had these ridge of high pressure. We're dealing with another one, which is nice. We've got the sunshine, but we well know we need the rain. And even when this ridge of high pressure breaks down, we're going to see a drop in temperature there's not a lot of precipitation that's going to come with it and then another ridge of high pressure develops and when we get those drops in temperature as I said without a lot of precipitation what happens is these are upper level troughs or sometimes dry cold fronts that bring windy conditions so it doesn't help the drought situation and it potentially could exasperate or make the fires that we're currently seeing worse now we do know that the likelihood of lightning over the next little while is going to come down we are we're now just watching really the potential for human caused fires. So be really careful when you're out there. We've got lots of sunshine to enjoy. We just don't need any new fires, that's for sure. All right, so we are expecting highest range from 21 to 26 degrees across Metro Vancouver. Similar temperatures expected not only tomorrow, but through Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Sunday, we were expecting a little bit more cloud cover with the potential for rainfall. But as I mentioned, it looks like that rainfall is going to dry out as it makes its way in. Calm in the caribou, says Steve. Beautiful shot. Thanks so much for sharing that one with us. Serene. Serenity now. Love it when the water's calm like that. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. All right, Squire's here now with a look ahead to sports. Squire. Okay, the Vancouver Whitecaps are on the verge of sending Sergio Cordova to a team in Turkey. Visit to Cordova, looking to get Stuber. He's got time and space. What's he going to do with it? He's going to score. Yeah, if only Cordova had done more of this, he'd probably still be here. Also ahead tonight, powwow in paradise. Nishka dancers show off their moves in Hawaii. The community effort it took to get them there. Squire Barnes, take it away. All right. It looks like um, Vancouver Whitecaps forward Sergio Cordova could be in Turkey next week. It's not a vacation. A Turkish team is negotiating with the Whitecaps for Cordova, who was signed by Vancouver as a designated player last winter and really hasn't done what he was paid to do, and that score a lot of goals. The deal with the Turkish club has to be done by Friday because that's when the transfer window closes in Turkey. And if it's not done, Cordova would stay here. But since he was signed through 2025 and he's taking up a precious designated player spot, Vancouver's going to do everything it can to move him. And they will get some money back for him. He had a hamstring issue early in the year, but there has just been too many missed chances. Not enough of this actual goal scoring for, from Cordova. So it's probably better that he goes. So in football, most kickers and punters don't really want to be hit. I'm guessing it's no different for the Lions, Sean White and Stefan Flintoff. Because when you think about it, when a kicker is on the field in a football game, he's trying to kick the ball as far away from him as possible. But every once in a while, the vortex of football violence finds the kicker. Like on Monday night, 
when Buffalo Bills punter Sam Martin was more like a matador on the Jets winning touchdown in overtime. Sam Martin corrals the snap. It's a short punt. Gibson on the return. Near side. I don't see any flags. Gibson inside the 30. Hits the Jets. And he's going to go. Jets win it. Xavier Gibson's 65-yard punt return overtime winner was the NFL highlight of week one. Unless, of course, you're a Bills fan or the guy who kicked him the ball. Bills punter and 10-year veteran Sam Martin. Martin was the Bills' last line of defense. And, well, how can we gently put it? His tackling effort, if you can call it that, wouldn't have stopped a five-year-old Pop Warner returner. You know, in that situation, you got to give him everything you got. That's you got 65 other guys depending on you to stop them and give your team a chance. So, you know, there's certain times where, as a kicker, you might want to fake a slip here and there. But that one, you definitely want to give him everything you got. I don't know. I usually just go straight for the straight for the legs. Yeah, wrapping up. I don't have the biggest arms, so I don't think that can take him down. But, but yeah, just just throw your body in the mix at least. Punters pride themselves in getting off that big booming punt, preferably angled off toward the corner of the field and near the sideline to make containment and tackling of the returner somewhat easier. For Flintoff, he's more than ready and yes, prides himself on being capable of making that game-saving stop thanks to extra practice back in college. My first two years in college and I was a walk-on, uh, Coach Mora, love the guy, Jim Mora, uh, now at UConn, um, he used the walk-on specialist as the tackling dummies. So I've been tackled by Cam Judge, Calgary, uh, Miles Jack, Eric Kendricks, like pretty big linebacker names. Uh, so I've taken my fair share of hits in practice. You just got to just try to roll into it with your pads and just try to roll into them if you can. Uh, I'm, I'm too small. I'll be like a fine powder if I ever got hit, so. <laughs> yeah, I know what that's all about. Uh, Sam and Bellies just did not want to end the man cup last night. Six Nations Chiefs were up 3-0 in the series, but Mitch Jones had a big game. He had three. It was close, though. They've all been close, actually, even though Six Nations won the first three and now lead the series three games to one. But this ended in spectacular fashion. 10-10. Zach Higgins had to make a save, and then the ball goes the other way, and it's Jeff Cornwall who will score the goal that made it 11-10. And the Bellies win it. Tonight is game number five. It's a best of seven. Oh, speaking of winning it, the Vancouver Canadians are up 1-0 in the North League Championship Series. They beat Everett last night 3-0. The Seas have the best pitching in the league, and it showed up last night. Game two is this evening in Everett. Then they get on the bus. They come home to Nat Bailey for game three on Friday, which is pretty much sold out. Because they won a game in Everett, Vancouver can win the championship at home. Games four and five will be on the weekend at Nat Bailey as well. There you go. Exciting. Thanks, Squire. Reason to get there for a hot dog and some mm. ball. All right, from northern BC to the South Pacific, the Nishka Nation gets a huge push to make it all the way to Hawaii. A Nishka dance group from northern BC is returning home from a very special performance in Hawaii, taking part in the Honolulu Intertribal Powwow. And although it took quite an effort for them to get there, as Catherine Urquhart reports, they're already planning their next trip back. For two years, they practiced their singing and dancing. 86 members of the Lax Galt Sap Cultural Dance Group did raffles and catering, 
along with collecting grants and donations. We raised close to a quarter of a million dollars to get the group to go over there. It was a struggle. Their goal? Participating in the annual Honolulu Intertribal Powwow. So where are you going? It was an epic adventure for all involved. Who live in a community of about 600, located north of Terrace. The journey was a huge success for the Niska people and their performances were well received at the two-day event in Oahu. event encouraged all involved to learn more about their culture. It's educational, it's fun, they're learning our history, our mythology, we have a very rich history. As they headed home, many were already talking about going back. <laughs> Catherine Urquhart, Global News. What a trip. Mm. All right, last word before we go, Christy? Lots of sunshine over the next couple of days. We certainly need the rain, and we had been talking about it for Sunday, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So we'll be watching the wildfires and the drought, certainly for days to come. Yeah, wow. Well, enjoy the sun if you need it. Yeah. A lovely sunset. Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night. <laughs>